Chapter Five, Part B of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, The Venetian Years by Giacomo Casanova. Episode One, Childhood, Chapter Five, Part B. Let us get up, my darlings, said I, and swear to each other eternal affection. When we had risen, we performed, all three together, ablutions which made them laugh a good deal, and which gave a new impetus to the ardor of our feelings. Sitting up in the simple costume of nature, we ate the remains of our supper, exchanging those thousand trifling words which love alone can understand, and we again retired to our bed, where we spent a most delightful night, giving each other mutual and oft-repeated proofs of our passionate ardor. Annette was the recipient of my last bounties, for Madame Orio having left the house to go to church, I had to hasten my departure, after assuring the two lovely sisters that they had effectually extinguished whatever flame might still have flickered in my heart for Angela. I went home and slept soundly until dinner-time. M. de Malipiero passed a remark upon my cheerful looks and the dark circles around my eyes, but I kept my own counsel, and I allowed him to think whatever he pleased. On the following day I paid a visit to Madame Orio, and Angela not being of the party, I remained to supper and retired with M. Rosa. During the evening Nanette contrived to give me a letter and a small parcel. The parcel contained a small lump of wax with the stamp of a key, and the letter told me to have a key made, and to use it to enter the house whenever I wished to spend the night with them. She informed me at the same time that Angela had slept with them the night following our adventures, and that, thanks to their mutual and usual practices, she had guessed the real state of things, that they had not denied it, adding that it was all her fault, and that Angela, after abusing them most vehemently, had sworn never again to darken their doors, but they did not care a jot. A few days afterwards, our good fortune delivered us from Angela. She was taken to Vicenza by her father, who had removed there for a couple of years, having been engaged to paint frescoes in some houses in that city. Thanks to her absence, I found myself undisturbed possessor of the two charming sisters, with whom I spent at least two nights every week, finding no difficulty in entering the house with the key which I had speedily procured. Carnival was nearly over when M. Manzoni informed me one day that the celebrated Juliet wished to see me, and regretted much that I had ceased to visit her. I felt curious as to what she had to say to me, and accompanied him to her house. She received me very politely, and, remarking that she had heard of a large hall I had in my house, she said she would like to give a ball there, if I would give her the use of it. I readily 
consented and she handed me twenty-four sequins for the supper and for the band undertaking to send people to place chandeliers in the hall and in my other rooms m de san vitali had left venice and the parmesan government had placed his estates in chancery in consequence of his extravagant expenditure i met him at versailles ten years afterwards he wore the insignia of the king's order of knighthood and was grand equerry to the eldest daughter of louis fifteen duchess of parma who like all french princesses could not be reconciled to the climate of italy the ball took place and went off splendidly all the guests belonged to juliet's set with the exception of madame orio her nieces and the procurator rosa who sat together in the room adjoining the hall and whom i had been permitted to introduce as persons of no consequence whatever while the after-supper minuets were being danced juliet took me apart and said take me to your bedroom i have just got an amusing idea my room was on the third story i showed her the way the moment we entered she bolted the door much to my surprise i wish you she said to dress me up in your ecclesiastical clothes and i will disguise you as a woman with my own things we will go down and dance together come let us first dress our hair feeling sure of something pleasant to come and delighted with such an unusual adventure i lose no time in arranging her hair and i let her afterwards dress mine she applies rouge and a few beauty spots to my face i humour her in everything and to prove her satisfaction she gives me the best of grace a very loving kiss on condition that i do not ask for anything else as you please beautiful juliet but i give you due notice that i adore you i place upon my bed a shirt an abbey's neckband a pair of drawers black silk stockings in fact a complete fit-out coming near the bed juliet drops her skirt and cleverly gets into the drawers which were not a bad fit but when she comes to the breeches there is some difficulty the waistband is too narrow and the only remedy is to rip it behind or to cut it if necessary i undertake to make everything right and as i sit on the foot of my bed she places herself in front of me with her back towards me i begin my work but she thinks that i want to see too much that i am not skilful enough and that my fingers wander in unnecessary places she gets fidgety leaves me tears the breeches and manages in her own way then i help her to put her shoes on and i pass the shirt over her head but as i am disposing the ruffle and the neckband she complains of my hands being too curious and in truth her bosom was rather scanty she calls me a knave and rascal but i take no notice of her i was not going to be duped and i thought that a woman who had been paid one hundred thousand ducats was well worth some study at last her toilet being completed my turn comes in spite of her objections i quickly get rid of my breeches and she must put on me the chemise then a skirt in a word she has to dress me up but 
all at once playing the coquette she gets angry because i do not conceal from her looks that very apparent proof that her charms have some effect on a particular part of my being and she refuses to grant me the favour which would soon afford both relief and calm i try to kiss her and she repulses me whereupon i lose patience and in spite of herself she has to witness the last stage of my excitement at the sight of this she pours out every insulting word she can think of i endeavour to prove that she is to blame but it is all in vain however she is compelled to complete my disguise there is no doubt that an honest woman would not have exposed herself to such an adventure unless she had intended to prove her tender feelings and that she would not have drawn back at the very moment she saw them shared by her companion but women like juliet are often guided by a spirit of contradiction which causes them to act against their own interests besides she felt disappointed when she found out that i was not timid and my want of restraint appeared to her a want of respect she would not have objected to my stealing a few light favours which she would have allowed me to take as being of no importance but but by doing that i should have flattered her vanity too highly our disguise being complete we went together to the dancing-hall where the enthusiastic applause of the guests soon restored our good temper everybody gave me credit for a piece of fortune which i had not enjoyed but i was not ill-pleased with the rumour and went on dancing with the false abbey who was only too charming juliet treated me so well during the night that i construed her manners towards me into some sort of repentance and i almost regretted what had taken place between us it was a momentary weakness for which i was sorely punished at the end of the quadrille all the men thought they had a right to take liberties with the abbe and i became myself rather free with the young girls who would have been afraid of exposing themselves to ridicule had they offered any opposition to my caresses m querini was foolish enough to inquire from me whether i had kept on my breeches and as i answered that i had been compelled to lend them to juliet he looked very unhappy sat down in a corner of the room and refused to dance every one of the guests soon remarked that i had on a woman's chemise and nobody entertained a doubt of the sacrifice having been consummated with the exception of nanette and martin who could not imagine the possibility of my being unfaithful to them juliet perceived that she had been guilty of great imprudence but it was too late to remedy the evil when we returned to my chamber upstairs thinking that she had repented of her previous behaviour and feeling some desire to possess her i thought i would kiss her and i took hold of her hand saying i was disposed to give her every satisfaction but she quickly slapped my face in so violent a manner that in my indignation i was very near returning the compliment i undressed myself rapidly without looking at her she did the same and we came downstairs but in spite of the cool water i had applied to my cheek every one could easily see the stamp of the large hand which had come in contact with my face 
before leaving the house juliet took me apart and told me in the most decided and impressive manner that if i had any fancy for being thrown out of the window i could enjoy that pleasure whenever i liked to enter her dwelling and that she would have me murdered if this night's adventure ever became publicly known i took care not to give her any cause for the execution of either of her threats but i could not prevent the fact of our having exchanged shirts being rather notorious as i was not seen at her house it was generally supposed that she had been compelled by m querini to keep me at a distance the reader will see how six years later this extraordinary woman thought proper to feign entire forgetfulness of this adventure i passed lent partly in the company of my loved ones partly in the study of experimental physics at the convent of the salutation my evenings were always given to m de malipiero's assemblies at easter in order to keep the promise i had made to the countess of montreal and longing to see again my beautiful lucie i went to pasean i found the guests entirely different to the set i had met the previous autumn count daniel the eldest of the family had married a countess gotzi and a young and wealthy government official who had married a good daughter of the old countess was there with his wife and his sister-in-law i thought the supper very long the same room had been given to me and i was burning to see lucie whom i did not intend to treat any more like a child i did not see her before going to bed but i expected her early in the morning when lo instead of her pretty face brightening my eyes i see standing before me a fat ugly servant girl i inquire after the gatekeeper's family but her answer is given in the peculiar dialect of the place and is of course unintelligible to me i wonder what has become of lucy i fancy that our intimacy has been found out i fancy that she's ill dead perhaps i dress myself with the intention of looking for her if she has been forbidden to see me i think to myself i will be even with them all for somehow or other i will contrive the means of speaking to her and out of spite i will do with her that which honour prevented love from accomplishing as i was revolving such thoughts the gatekeeper comes in with a sorrowful countenance i inquire after his wife's health and after his daughter but at the name of lucy his eyes are filled with tears what is she dead would to god she were what has she done she has run away with count daniel's courier and we have been unable to trace her anywhere his wife comes in at the moment he replies and at these words which renewed her grief the poor woman faints away the keeper seeing how sincerely i felt for his misery tells me that this great misfortune befell them only a week before my arrival i know that man l'aigle i say he is a scoundrel did he ask to marry lucy no he knew well enough that our consent would have been refused i wonder at lucy acting in such a way he seduced her and her running away made us suspect the truth for she had become very stout had he known her long 
About a month after your last visit, she saw him for the first time. He must have thrown a spell over her, for our Lucy was as pure as a dove, and you can, I believe, bear testimony to her goodness. And no one knows where they are? No one. God alone knows what this villain will do with her. I grieved as much as the unfortunate parents. I went out and took a long ramble in the woods to give way to my sad feelings. During two hours I cogitated over considerations, some true, some false, which were all prefaced by an if. If I had paid this visit, as I might have done, a week sooner, loving Lucie would have confided in me, and I would have prevented that self-murder. If I had acted with her as with Nanette and Martin, she would not have been left by me in that state of ardent excitement which must have proved the principal cause of her fault, and she would not have fallen a prey to that scoundrel. If she had not known me before meeting the courier, her innocent soul would never have listened to such a man. I was in despair, for in my conscience I acknowledged myself the primary agent of this infamous seduction. I had prepared the way for the villain. Had I known where to find Lucy, I would certainly have gone forth on the instant to seek for her, but no trace whatsoever of her whereabouts had been discovered. Before I had been made acquainted with Lucy's misfortune, I felt great pride at having had sufficient power over myself to respect her innocence, but after hearing what had happened, I was ashamed of my own reserve, and I promised myself that for the future I would, on that score, act more wisely. I felt truly miserable when my imagination painted the probability of the unfortunate girl being left to the poverty and shame, cursing the remembrance of me and hating me as the first cause of her misery. This fatal event caused me to adopt a new system, which in after years I carried sometimes rather too far. I joined the cheerful guests of the Countess in the gardens, and received such a welcome that I was soon again in my usual spirits, and at dinner I delighted everyone. My sorrow was so great that it was necessary either to drive it away at once or to leave Pazian, but a new life crept into my being as I examined the face and the disposition of the newly married lady. Her sister was prettier, but I was beginning to feel afraid of a novice. I thought the work too great. This newly married lady, who was between nineteen and twenty years of age, drew upon herself everybody's attention by her overstrained and unnatural manners. A great talker, with a memory crammed with maxims and precepts often without sense, but to which she loved to make a show very devout, and so jealous of her husband that she did not conceal her vexation when he expressed his satisfaction at being seated at table opposite her sister. She laid herself open to much ridicule. Her husband was a giddy young fellow who perhaps felt very deep affection for his wife, but who imagined that, through good breeding, he ought to appear very indifferent, and whose vanity found pleasure in giving her constant causes for jealousy. 
She, in turn, had a great dread of passing for an idiot if she did not show her appreciation of, and her resentment for, his conduct. She felt uneasy in the midst of good company, precisely because she wished to appear thoroughly at home. If I prattled away with some of my trilling nonsense, she would stare at me, and in her anxiety not to be thought stupid, she would laugh out of season. Her oddity, her awkwardness, and her self-conceit gave me the desire to know her better, and I began to dance attendance upon her. My attentions, important and unimportant, my constant care, every my fropperies, let everybody know that I meditated conquest. The husband was duly warned, but with a great show of intrepidity, he answered me with a joke every time he was told that I was a formidable rival. On my side, I assumed a modest and even sometimes a careless appearance when, to show his freedom from jealousy, he excited me to make love to his wife who, on her part, understood but little how to perform the part of fancy-free. I had been paying my address to her for five or six days with great constancy, when, taking a walk with her in the garden, she imprudently confided to me the reason of her anxiety respecting her husband, and how wrong he was to give her any cause for jealousy. I told her, speaking as an old friend, that the best way to punish him would be to take no apparent notice of her, husband's preference for her sister, and to feign to be herself in love with me. In order to entice her more easily to follow my advice, I added that I was well aware of my plan being a very difficult one to carry out, and that to play successfully such a character, a woman must be particularly witty. I had touched her weak point, and she exclaimed that she would play the part to perfection. But, in spite of her self-confidence, she acquitted herself so badly that everybody understood that the plan was of my own scheming. If I happened to be alone with her in the dark paths of the garden, and tried to make her play her part in real earnest, she would take the dangerous step of running away and rejoining the other guests the result being that, on my reappearance, I was called a bad sportsman who frightened the bird away. I would not fail at the first opportunity to reproach her for her flight, and to represent the triumph she had thus prepared for her spouse. I praised her mind, but lamented over the shortcomings of her education. I said that the tone the manners I adopted towards her were those of good society, and proved the great esteem I entertained for her intelligence, but in the middle of all my fine speeches, towards the eleventh or twelfth day of my courtship, she suddenly put me out of all conceit by telling me that, being a priest, I ought to know that every amorous connection was a deadly sin that God could see every action of his creatures, and that she would neither damn her soul nor place herself under the necessity of saying to her confessor that she had so far forgotten herself as to commit such a sin with a priest. 
I objected that I was not yet a priest, but she foiled me by inquiring point-blank whether or not the act I had in view was to be numbered amongst the cardinal sins, for, not feeling the courage to deny it, I felt that I must give up the argument and put an end to the adventure. A little consideration having considerably calmed my feelings, everybody remarked my new countenance during dinner and the old count who was very fond of a joke expressed loudly his opinion that such a quiet demeanour on my part announced the complete success of my campaign considering such a remark to be favourable to me i took care to spew my cruel devotee that such was the way the world would judge but all this was lost labour luck however stood me in good stead and my efforts were crowned with success in the following manner on ascension day we all went to pay a visit to madame bergali a celebrated italian poetess on my return to Pazian the same evening my pretty mistress wished to get into a carriage for four persons in which her husband and sister were already seated while i was alone in a two-wheeled chaise i exclaimed at this saying that such a mark of distrust was indeed too pointed and everybody remonstrated with her saying that she ought not to insult me so cruelly she was compelled to come with me and having told the postillion that i wanted to go by the nearest road he left the other carriages and took the way through the forest of Chiquini the sky was clear and cloudless when we left but in less than half an hour we were visited by one of those storms so frequent in the south which appeared likely to overthrow heaven and earth and which end rapidly leaving behind them a bright sky and a cool atmosphere so that they do more good than harm oh heavens exclaimed my companion we shall have a storm yes i say and although the chaise is covered the rain will spoil your pretty dress i am very sorry i do not mind the dress but the thunder frightens me so close your ears and the lightning postillon let us go somewhere for shelter there is not a house sir for a league and before we come to it the storm will have passed off he quietly keeps on his way and the lightning flashes the thunder sends forth its mighty voice and the lady shudders with fright the rain comes down in torrents i take off my cloak to shelter us in front at the same moment we are blinded by a flash of lightning and the electric fluid strikes the earth within one hundred yards of us the horses plunge and prance with fear and my companion falls in spasmodic convulsions she throws herself upon me and folds me in her arms the cloak had gone down i stoop to place it around us and improving my opportunity i take up her clothes she tries to pull them down but another clap of thunder deprives her of every particle of strength covering her with the cloak i draw her towards me and the motion of the chaise coming to my assistance she falls over me in the most favourable position i lose no time and under pretence of arranging my watch in my fob i prepare myself for the assault on her side conscious that unless she stops me at once all is lost she makes a great effort but i hold her tightly saying that if she does not feign a fainting fit 
the postboy will turn round and see everything. I let her enjoy the pleasure of calling me an infidel, a monster, anything she likes, but my victory is the most complete that ever a champion achieved. The rain, however, was falling. The wind, which was very high, blew in our faces, and compelled to stay where she was, she said I would ruin her reputation, as the postillon could see everything. I keep my eye upon him, I answered. He is not thinking of us, and even if he should turn his head, the cloak shelters us from him. Be quiet, and pretend to have fainted, for I will not let you go. She seems resigned, and asks how I can thus set the storm at defiance. The storm, dear one, is my best friend to-day. She almost seems to believe me, her fear vanishes, and feeling my rapture she inquires whether I have done. I smile and answer in the negative, stating that I cannot let her go till the storm is over. Consent to everything, or I let the cloak drop, I say to her. Well, you dreadful man, are you satisfied now that you have insured my misery for the remainder of my life? No, not yet. What more do you want? A shower of kisses. How unhappy I am! Well, here they are. Tell me you forgive me, and confess that you have shared all my pleasure. You know I did. Yes, I forgive you. Then I give her her liberty, and treating her to some very pleasant caresses, I ask her to have the same kindness for me, and she goes to work with a smile on her pretty lips. Tell me you love me, I say to her. No, I do not, for you are an atheist, and hell awaits you. The weather was fine again, and the elements calm. I kissed her hands and told her that the postillion had certainly not seen anything, and that I was sure I had cured her of her dread of thunder, but that she was not likely to reveal the secret of my remedy. She answered that one thing at least was certainly, namely that no other woman had ever been cured by the same prescription why i say the same remedy has very likely been applied a million of times within the last thousand years to tell the truth i had somewhat depended upon it when we entered the chaise together for i did not know any other way of obtaining the happiness of possessing you but console yourself with the belief that placed in the same position no frightened woman could have resisted i believe you but for the future I will travel only with my husband. You would be wrong, for your husband would not have been clever enough to cure your fright in the way I have done. True again, one learns some curious things in your company, but we shall not travel tete-a-tete again. And my fair mistress ran off to her chamber while I was looking for a crown for the postillon. I saw that he was grinning. What are you laughing at? Oh, you know. Here, take this ducat and keep a quiet tongue in your head. End of chapter 5, part B